Well, this week's focus, this year's theme is servanthood. Clearly a good thing, drawn from the Bible. But, you know, the Bible doesn't really talk much about servanthood because most of the passages that our English versions translate as servant or as serve really mean slave or to serve as a slave. Servant is really more of a euphemism, really too weak, too soft a word, conjuring up images of the gentleman's gentleman, you know, the commercially type of person who stands fast, uh, proudly in his professional service. Uh, no, the Bible speaks in a much coarser way than that. Not servanthood, at least in the way we typically think of it, but in terms of slavehood. And that's what we want to consider this morning. You know, not since the American Civil War has our nation or the world been so riveted with the issue of slavery than today. The murder of George, of George Floyd brought to the forefront of our thinking the shameful experience of African slavery in this country. But that tragic crime, and many others like it, stirred up those same ugly cultural memories in peoples around the world. It spawned protests, not only in Los Angeles, but also in London, and not merely in Memphis, but so too in Melbourne, where practically every nation was complicit in slave trading. And if that were not enough to make us think of slavery, we are constantly reminded that slavery is more prominent today than it ever has been in the history of the world. Human trafficking is slavery in modern dress. And there are right now over 40 million slaves in the world. One in every 200 people on this planet live in slavery. So clearly, slavery is on our minds. It repulses us. There is nothing good about it. In a word, it is evil. So we are jolted to find that according to the Bible, God insists that a certain form of slave life is the best thing in the world. It is the real, the one thing, the ideal towards which we should all be striving. But really this disconnect between our disgust towards slavery as we see it in our world and God's celebration of the kind of slavery God has in mind should not surprise us. For every evil is actually a perversion of something good. Lust is a perversion of the drive for sexual intimacy that God has lovingly placed within us and is so beautifully described in the Song of Solomon. Violence is a perversion of the strength and power that God has entrusted to us to maintain God's order in the world. Likewise, freely giving ourselves in love to the benefit and service of another, in other words, willing slavery, stands at the center of God's purpose for us. But we humans, in our gross sinfulness, have taken this glory, the glory really of this kind of loving, willing slavery, and twisted it into its opposite. 
the forcing of other human beings into bondage to us. We have turned God's beautiful design of selfless, loving service towards others into an institution where we selfishly force others to serve us. But God continues to hold forth that original beautiful design of love-generated, willing slavery. In fact, God charts the way by himself becoming a slave. To be God is to be willing slave. God's commitment to become a slave stands at the center of what it means for God to be God. Now, that is a point, really, of the passage that we just heard. Here we learn that Christ was from eternity in the form of God. He bore all the marks of Godhood. He shared the very essence of deity. We learn that because he was in the form of God, and that's really the way we need to understand that construction, because he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited for his own self-serving benefit. As God, he knew that this is not who God is. God does not exploit who he is or what he has for his own advantage. Rather, Christ expressed Godhood precisely by emptying himself of himself, rejecting all self-interest and self-prerogative and casting aside every bit of pride, he humbled himself by taking on the form of a slave. So Christ expresses the form of God, the essence of God, by taking on the form of a slave and becoming a man. By the way, Paul is also making here a profound claim about human life, your life and mine. Paul is suggesting that we human beings are by nature slaves. Notice the wording. He took the form of a slave by becoming a man. To be a human is to be a slave. Not only does slavehood stand at the center of what it means to be God, it is also at the heart of what it means to be a human. We have been created not to do our own will, but the will of another, namely, of course, God. And we have been created not to enhance our own selves or to strive to achieve our own interests. That is not what it means to be a human being, but always and only to serve the interests of others. Now, obviously, people in general don't think or act this way. Left to ourselves, we don't live out this kind of slavery. And we think that by refusing to be the kinds of slaves God has made us to be, rejecting the claims that God and others rightly have upon us, we can thereby be free. And that is a great lie. We cannot escape slavery. We will either be slaves to God, and out of God's love, slaves towards others, or we will be slaves to our own selfish interests, which is another way of saying slaves to sin. Either way, rightly and redemptively on God's terms, or wrongly and destructively on ours, we are slaves. Human freedom simply doesn't exist. 
So we see how naturally the story of Christ becomes a story of us. Nevertheless, this is still the story of Christ. Now, a slave doesn't exist for himself, but only to do the will of his master and to serve the interest of his master. Those are the two prongs of slavery, to do the will of the master's master and to serve the interests of his master. So Christ, the son of the father, became slave to his own father and was perfectly obedient to his father's will. I have come to do the will of him who sent me, he said. Not my will, but your will be done, he prayed. I always do the things that please him, he declared. But this God-man, this God in human form, also became slave to us. Our creator willingly became our slave. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, he said. Which is greater, he asked, one who sits at table or one who serves? But I am among you as one who serves. Clearly, he became slave to us not in the sense of doing our will, of obediently beckoning to our bidding, but in the sense of serving our interests always, every moment, forgetting himself, abandoning himself, and doing only those things that benefit us. Now, it's important that we keep these two aspects of Jesus' slavery distinct, obedience to God, serving our interests, because we often think of Christ as existing to do our will, that he is our servant in the sense of obediently fulfilling our desires. But our wishes, our desires, do not always align with our best interests. Sin has seen to that. In fact, Christ may be slave to us in the sense of serving our interests by doing exactly the opposite of what we want. As slave to God, he does the Father's will. But as slave to us, he serves our interests. Yet in all cases, like a slave, his thinking was others-oriented. The Father's will, our good. But, not, but God never does anything halfway, does he? As true God, Jesus adopts slavery not only in the sense of complete obedience to the Father, not only in the sense of selfless commitment to our interests, but even in the sense of absolute humiliation. A slave has not only has no prerogatives and no rights, but no pride, no dignity to put forward for others to acknowledge. A slave lives in constant and complete humiliation. Christ not only emptied himself, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death on a cross. This is as low as a human being could possibly go. Cicero called crucifixion the most cruel and abominable form of punishment. In fact, crucifixion was a topic not fit for polite conversation. People didn't even talk about it. But what made crucifixion so horrendous was not the physical agony, which we tend to focus upon, but the shame. Crucifixion was the most humiliating ordeal a person could experience. It was reserved especially for the rottenest slaves. 
it was a public announcement that this person is an obscenity, is filth. The cross represents the lowest depths of slavehood. In submitting to the cross, Jesus cast aside all attempts to maintain even the slightest bit of respectability. God hangs naked upon a cross with nothing to, but shame to cover him. But as far as Jesus is concerned, the only opinion that matters is the Father's. And the Father makes his view known in the most spectacular way. Therefore, also, God has exalted him to the highest degree. God answers superhumiliation with super-exaltation and has given to him God's own name, the name Lord, that is, Yahweh. The name of the Lord, according to the Old Testament, God's most precious possession. The public face of God's glory. That's about the best way I can define or describe the meaning of the name of the Lord in the Old Testament. The public face of God's glory. He has now been given to Jesus Christ. Well, back in Isaiah, God had said, To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Now God has given this final dominion and end-time worship of the cosmos, which was to be God's to Jesus Christ in validation of Jesus' slavehood. Now you understand that this glory was not the reward for Jesus' humility. For then, if it had been that, all that Jesus did would have been just playing the old game of self-advancement, trying to achieve this eternal glorification through the back door of temporary slavehood. No, the humiliation is the glory. In the exaltation, God makes clear that the form of the slave is a form of God. God has announced it to the world in the resurrection. And although most of the world has not yet accepted this announcement, at the consummation, the entire universe will be forced to affirm what the church confesses now, the truth that lordship is constituted by this kind of slavery. God has done all God could possibly do to put his stamp of approval on that slave kind of thinking and that slave kind of living. As exalted Lord, Jesus continues to bear the marks of his humiliation the bleeding wounds that stand forever like a slave's branding on his body. And it is precisely as he bears those bloody marks, that slave's brand, that he stands at the center of all reality as the Lord of the universe. So this is the story of Christ. But Paul tells the story of Christ in order to set it alongside our story so that the story of Christ becomes our story. Have this mind in you, which was in Christ Jesus. But what does it look like for us to make Jesus' slavehood, what we politely call servanthood, our own? Well, the answer is in the context. Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, makes it plain. Do nothing from selfishness, he says. Don't be selfish. 
That's the way the Revised Standard Version renders Paul's language here. Now consider how general that is. Who could object to that? Everybody knows that selfishness is a bad thing. No one wants to be known as selfish. It's possible to hide behind generalities, isn't it? The problem with generalities is that they become meaningless. They float above the earth without ever making contact with the ground. We can stuff them with our own content, a content that doesn't really challenge us, and we can go on our way feeling quite moral and righteous and even superior. As Bart said, at that rate, we can go on occupying unmolested the castle we live in. But Paul has something specific in mind here that we cannot hide from. He is talking about repudiating an entitlement mentality, an attitude of self-centered acquisition, doing everything we can to grasp what we believe belongs to us, insisting that others yield to us that which we think we are entitled to. But the incarnation is one big no to entitlement. Equality with God was properly Christ's, but he refused to grasp for it simply because he had it coming. Christ despised the disposition that thinks in terms of rights. Can you imagine Jesus talking about his rights? Insisting that people respect his rights. You cannot be a Christ slave and a pursuer of your rights. For a slave does not have rights, and a willing slave is one who gladly abdicates her rights. We live in a society that talks endlessly about rights. We hear constantly of the obligation we have, cast as a moral obligation, to stand up for our rights. But if we are speaking biblically, we cannot use the term rights in the same breath as God. The notion of rights has nothing to do with the God of the Bible, who strives for what is good for others and puts our well-being before his own claims. Now, it is true that the notion of natural rights, which then extends into human rights and civil rights, that the notion of natural rights may be serviceable in ordering a secular society in terms of limiting the damage that the powerful might wish to inflict upon the weak and marginal and may thus serve the cause of justice. And justice certainly is God's concern. And insofar as talk about rights in a secular society can promote justice, we ought to celebrate it. But all the while, we need to remember that rights is a political and not a kingdom category. In fact, there may be a better way of thinking and talking about justice than the language of rights. At the end of the day, the notion of the love of God to all people, and especially to the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed, offers a stronger foundation for justice. Now, does this repudiation of our rights mean that our Lord wants us to allow people to walk all over us? To take advantage of us? Well, sometimes it might. 
but it might not. The touchstone is always doing that which is in the best interests of the other. That may, in certain circumstances, involve confronting them, calling them to account. In fact, in some cases, meekly acquiescing uh, to another may be just a, a, another form of self-protection and selfishness through the back door. Being slave to others doesn't mean necessarily doing their will, but what is in their best interest, whether they like what this looks like or not. So, repudiating an entitlement mentality. But Paul goes on, do nothing from conceit, but in humility consider others as better than yourselves. In other words, recognize your own inferiority and others' superiority. Now, in the world in which Paul lived, humility was not a virtue, but a vice. In fact, in, in the ancient world, in all the ancient world, this word that Paul uses here is used in a positive sense only in the Bible and in early Christian literature based upon it. Otherwise, it was always negative. It was a bad thing. People in that culture said, as you compare yourself with other people, to consider yourself as inferior to them and not to insist upon your own worth and put it forth is sick. If you do that, you won't live up to your potential and you'll have little to offer to society. And that makes perfect sense. If your reference point is other people. But according to the Bible, and this is why this word is found differently and used differently in the Bible than in all the, other, in all the rest of the ancient world entirely. According to the Bible, our reference point is God. And when I as a creature compare myself to Almighty God, and I as a sinner compare myself to the Holy God, I am rightly brought very low in my self-estimation. From this point of view, I have to acknowledge that in myself, I am an insignificant, dirty speck. I am nothing before God, and therefore I have no business putting myself forward as something before other human beings. But this is not how people in our modern world think, is it? Some years ago, um, a popular Christian rock band appeared on the top-rated talk show Donahue. And Phil Donahue, who was, who was a, a nominal Catholic, asked them to sing Amazing Grace. And they began, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And Donahue stopped them, there, interrupted them, and said, that's what I object to about your Christian faith. I am not a wretch. And the members of that band had nothing to say. They sat dumbfounded. It was a perfect opportunity to share the gospel. But sadly, they lacked the theological ability to give an answer. That's plain and simple what happened. They should have said, with all due respect, Mr. Donahue, you take exception to the idea that you are a wretch because you refuse to acknowledge the absolute reality of Almighty God. You are content to see yourself in relation to other people. 
but God insists that you see yourself in relation to him. And when you do that, please come back and tell us if you can stand proud before the great sovereign of the universe. And if you can lift your head high before the eyes of the perfectly holy Lord. When I look at myself from the perspective, not from the perspective of God, but in relation to other people, I can say at bottom, I am just as good as they are. And the conclusion is obvious. I have an obligation to assert myself and not to lower myself before anybody else. And if you think that way, you will never really humble yourself before God or before any other human being. The towel and the basin will remain safely in the corner. But if I think that way, I am not thinking like Christ. The Christ slave considers others as better than herself. Now, note, Paul does not say that we ought to believe that others are better than we are, because, in fact, they are not. We are all on an equal footing as unclean specks before God, but as people who have infinite value because we are loved by God. It is really God's love towards us that, that, uh, uh, that, that gives us any real self-worth that we have. It's God's love toward us as those who, whom God has created and has redeemed that gives us a healthy and right sense of self-worth, a confident kind of self-worth that frees us to give ourselves away. So it is not believing they are better, but considering them as better. When I look at you, through the eyes of love, I see someone who has more value than I do. From the perspective of love, you are more valuable to me than I am to myself. That is what it means to love someone. It's analogous to falling in love. This is how true lovers think of each other. I, I think, actually I know, I was 13 when I first fell head over heels for, for someone. And I remember that for me, she was more important than I was to myself. Now, you'll say, well, that's eros love. That's romantic love. But let me remind us that erotic love, at its best, has an element of agape in it. That is why the obsession for the other person on the part of someone who has fallen in love is in some ways like Christian agape love. What Paul is talking about here goes beyond Jesus' summation of God's law. You remember he was asked, what is the great commandment of the law? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul is insisting that Christ's love means loving the other more than yourself. Now, all of this is a radically different way of thinking about others. To be sure, there have been good people outside the Christian faith who have adopted this kind of loving and serving mentality up to a point. But even in the most noble of them, you will find limits. This Christ slavery is loving submission towards all others that is absolutely boundless. And this is not a human capacity. Our identification with ourselves is too strong. The tentacles of self-interest bind us too tightly. I cannot live this way, but Jesus did. 
It is for us to let go and release the Christ who is in us. One of the greatest regrets which I have lived with for many years involves an incident that happened when I was a junior high school student. It was band class, and our teacher stepped out of the room for several minutes. Now, whenever a teacher leaves a junior high school class, you know things are going to turn out badly. And it did. A girl who was known, frankly, with good reason, as the ugliest creature in the school, was returning her instrument to a cage-like enclosed area at the front of the classroom when one of the students locked the door behind her and posted a large sign that read, Do Not Feed the Animals. She was humiliated. And in her fright, she did scurry around that cage like an animal. Well, the huge class exploded in laughter. I was appalled. And in my disgust, I wanted to help her. In other words, to serve her, to submit her interest, to, so to submit to her interest in that desperate moment, which would mean going up in front of everyone, unlocking the door, and letting her out. That was my will. But I remember the feeling of being unable to move. I was literally paralyzed by the desire for acceptance, by the fear of being ridiculed, by the terror of being rejected. I was a Christian believer. I was, to use one of Paul's favorite expressions, in Christ. But for that moment, I forgot that I was in Christ. In that moment, I allowed my life to be determined by the space of that room rather than the space of Christ which I inhabited. All I would have had to do is to center my mind upon the reality that as a Christian, my environment is always Jesus Christ, and that whatever is going on around me physically has no power to deter me from doing His will. I forgot that as a Christian, I have been crucified with Christ, that it is not I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And Chrysostom's great words, that Christ becomes our proper selves. I forgot that. I could have remembered it. That is what I mean by by releasing the Christ in me. I could not act as Christ's slave to her. But the Christ in me could. Or, as Paul will say at the end of this very epistle, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Amen.